Yes, I think we have some in. I saw the Grimions here earlier, and I've been told the Bradshaws are here. Where are you guys? Hey, y'all. Good to have y'all back. Even if for a little while. If you wouldn't mind, turn open to John chapter 18. Have y'all enjoyed this series on John or what? Me too. We're going to start this morning in verse 19 and go all the way through verse 40. Uh, We are going to skip a little section in verse 25 through 27. We'll skip as Peter covered those last week. Picking up on the story, Jesus has been uh, arrested. He now is gone to uh, a man's house named Annas, who is, we've been told, is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And he is, the Caiaphas was a high priest that year. Caiaphas, uh, Annas is actually Caiaphas' father-in-law. And so here we pick up in the story where Jesus is being questioned by Annas. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me, have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And has then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews answered him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king for this purpose. I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at this at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Lord, we thank you for 
the wonderful opportunity to go into your word and have it speak to us. Thank you that when we interact with your word, we're interacting with you. We're interacting with the living God. And we ask that the mark and the impression of the living God by your spirit would be upon us and in us and even work its way through us for others to see as a result of this time in your word. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for inspiring these men to write things down for us to know something. Thank you for your grace in giving us your word. You are wonderful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, I remember uh, sitting in the passenger seat. Because when I was a kid, those days you got to sit in the passenger seat of a car. Now you're not allowed to do that for whatever reason until you're about 18. I think you get to ride in the passenger seat. But I remember I'd always stare out of the window and look at the little mirror. And I remember when the mirrors had the little slogan attached to the bottom. Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And what, uh, believing this was the safety feature that was added to vehicles and the sight, you could see the convex shape of it. It, it widened the, uh, the field of view for the driver to be able to see blind spots, all that stuff. I used to, in my own little nerdism, I would try to guess how far things were behind me as I was looking in the mirror. I, I don't think I was ever trying to see how many feet there were. I just was looking to see how fast they were moving, I guess. But I think we, we sort of need that type of admonition as we come to this chapter, rather this passage that we're examining this morning, uh, where our, our field of view needs to be widened a little bit. And really, the objects in the passage are other than what they appear and seem. Because in this, on the surface, Jesus is being put to trial. And we've read the gospel account up to this point. And the other gospels talk about this, this scene as well. We've read the gospel accounts. And what we see on the surface is here Jesus, the innocent one, is being, he's being criticized. He's being struck. He's being tried. He's being questioned. Those around him are being questioned. But really, is this taking a wider field of view? Not so much Jesus being on trial as Jesus holding court. And he calls two witnesses to this court. In the other gospel accounts, we find where here John is just he takes him, takes us from Anna straight to there's a word in there. There's a verse in there. It says he went to Caiaphas' house. That actually was his trial before the Sanhedrin, but probably wasn't the entire Sanhedrin. The other gospel accounts have that fully in there. But I think John's anticipation is really just to communicate what Jesus was doing in this moment, because really it's a repeat. Annas and Caiaphas' house repeat, as well as Pilate and then Pilate sending Jesus to Herod. And then back to Pilate, we find that John is, I think, communicating something that we want to point out this morning and and consider that the other gospel accounts went into uh, more depth. But here, John is he's writing so that we'll believe he's writing that will see Jesus, the son of God and believe. And that's what this account is about. But in any court case, a charge needs to be brought. And here the charge uh, that the people who have think they have Jesus on trial, they are trying and, and trying to figure out how to bring up a trial. And uh, and they really can't do that. In the other, other gospel accounts, we find that they're bringing false testimony and they can't even agree even on false testimony, what Jesus said and did. <coughs> Pardon me. 
And as they're they're trying to get this, they they can't uh, the spiritual authority, the physical authority, they can't seem to mount a charge against Jesus. But lest we think that Jesus may have done should have done something to gain control of the situation, he's in complete control. Interestingly, that, that John makes the notion and he was bound. But he's in control. Things aren't maybe what they appear. Jesus is the judge, and he's actually with with Annas and Pilate, I think he's Within them and their their characters, but their persons, he's revealing for which the purpose he will go to the cross for all those who would trust in him and in his death. And he reveals he reveals the charges against them as he's asking them the questions. You know, it's so uh, and this is a, a wonderful parenting technique is to learn the art of asking questions, because when you ask questions, it's different than just proclaiming an observation. It's easy for parents to say, just do this. It's different when we have to ask questions to discover the heart motivation of our child to be able to lead them, have them understand why they're doing what they're doing. Well, here Jesus is doing just that. He's asking questions and getting to the heart more than proclaiming just what the problem is. Jesus is revealing their state, the state of their hearts, their cold, hard, stony, rebellious hearts. Past the physical appearance of what we see, Jesus, I think, is revealing why he's going to the cross, what he's dying specifically for. So Jesus calls witnesses and his first witness is a man named Annas. Now, Annas was he was uh, not the high priest that year. We read that he's the father in law of the high priest, but he was a high priest. Now, in the Roman order, they only allowed a year reign of a high priest in that in that day, whereas in, we find in Scripture in the Old Testament, in the law that was revealed to Moses, the high priest had the high priest job for life. And so the Jews are probably thinking that and actually in studying this out, it's uh, it's most probable that Annas probably had five of his own sons, no less than five of his own sons that were also high priests. So he's the high priest emeritus. He's the patriarch of the high priests. And so they're bringing Jesus to the patriarch, the real, maybe the Jews, the real high priest for him to be questioned. Now, Annas questions Jesus. Now, this is very different and and very conspicuous because in this culture, the the defendant, the one charged, the one accused was never questioned. The witnesses were the ones questioned and grilled. Why? Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us. That on the basis of two or more witnesses is a charge established. So here, it's very interesting that Annas is not, he's not looking for witnesses. He's questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, Jesus, being the savior that he is, doesn't throw his disciples under the bus. Oh, you can ask Peter. He's over there. He can point. He's right there. He just denied me once. Oh, you can ask uh, John. You can ask Thaddeus. You can ask Nathaniel. He doesn't do that. But here, he, I think what Amos is really going after is the teaching. What did you teach? That's why Jesus says, well, you know what I taught. There wasn't anything in secret. You can't go to my disciples and try to find something that I said in secret that we're mounting this conspiracy and do this and act this way. You're not going to find that because I said everything in the open. Now, certainly we had the council when Jesus went with his disciples. He explained things to him that was maybe different from what he shared with the crowd. But it was of the same nature in essence. It wasn't something completely different. And here Annas is trying to discover this and, and pick this out of Jesus. And Jesus does something very sovereign. 
he reminds Annas, there are witnesses about me. Why don't you go ask them? Well, Annas doesn't want to ask them. Annas wants to execute Jesus. He can't find the... He can't find the charge from Jesus. And here, the guilt is exposed in Annas. Whereas he puts Annas on the stand, so to speak, he lets him know that everything's been done in the open. Go ask the witnesses. But then he's struck. But interestingly, he asked Annas, why do you ask me? Maybe because there was no other charge. Maybe he was trying to find from him something that would establish his own position again. See, Annas had a position that was, uh, for him, it seems in this context, a life position, even though the Roman authority didn't grant a life position to the high priest. But he's got this life position and he's looking to question Jesus because he's threatened by Jesus. If you're the king, then there's no need for me anymore. So now, I want you dead. He's struck. Jesus is struck with the hand. And we read this. This is our Savior. But again, Jesus is looking for the true witnesses. If I was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if I'm right, why do you strike me? Again, a question to reveal a heart motive. Why do you strike me if I'm right? Well, because in, in the bondage of those that are there with them, They want to be right themselves. They don't want Jesus to be right. If he's right, that means they're wrong, but they're not just wrong before God because they don't really care about God. They're wrong before everybody that's looking at them. And here we find this heart idolatry going on. This religious, yeah, I believe Jesus is exposing religious idolatry with Annas on the stand. He's guilty. Annas is guilty of searching the scriptures, not for salvation, but more for position and power. And here in this instance, he's looking for position with God himself. His position now is threatened. He wants to do away with the threat. He's not simply looking and thinking that obedience will gain his salvation, but now he's wanting to demand his own preservation Demand his own salvation with Jesus. Consider these scriptures, John 5, 39. Here's the indictment that Jesus is laying against Annas in all of the religiosity and the, the religious idolatry of those that were so around him and prevalent in the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have Life. Matthew 23, 1 through 7. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So they practice and observe whatever they tell you. But not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by Others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Look at that. They love the place of honor and they loved greetings. They love the name which others called them. 
And then Matthew 23, 23 and 24. Woe to you. That means cursed are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Hear their hypocrisy, even in this passage later on in verse 28, we find that they won't even go into here. They want their they want the savior executed, but they won't even go into the Gentile headquarters because they don't want they want to be able to eat dinner with their families during the week. They want to be ceremonial clean to be able to partake of all the meals during the Feast of Unleavened Bread that they're approaching and the Passover meal. Here, the height of their hypocrisy, they're missing Jesus completely. But yet they love their laws and their rules. I think Annas represents the quest that so many of us battle with. And that's to gain position through our spirituality. Thinking that uh, our, because of our level of moral conformity. We judge ourselves against others, but really we judge ourselves with God and not let him address our own hearts. God does not reward based on gaining greater spirituality, based on our performance. He rewards us when we believe in Christ. See, when we when we focus on law, when we focus on the things that are secondary, when we focus on the things that that give us a greater sense of spirituality and moral conformity. You know what we do? Jesus told them, this is what you lack. This is what you neglect. You ignore. You ignore mercy. You ignore. You ignore mercy toward others who have sinned. Yet you have a pet issue that can't you can't 10, 15, 20 years can't seem to get free of. But yet when somebody else does something, there's no mercy. And there's there's a neglect of justice. There's a neglect of honoring others in the body of Christ. Genuinely honoring them and not despising and being jealous over position and greetings and being called something. Looking more for relationships to serve our own personal needs rather than looking to serve and be of no name and no reputation. Just like Jesus was who, when he came to the earth, did not regard what? Equality with God, something to be grasped, but humbled himself and made himself low. See, we neglect mercy, we neglect justice and we neglect faithfulness, faithfulness toward God and faithfulness toward others. We it it begins to come this resting on what we know of God as enough for our spirituality rather than an ongoing present pursuit of the Savior and a knowledge of his greatness and goodness. Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Keith quoted from this a few weeks ago. Uh, it's an exceptional read. He says, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. Excellent definition. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false God. This occurs when people rely on their rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. 
It is a subtle but deadly mistake. The sign that you have slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers always show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. This is a sign that they do not see themselves as sinners saved by grace. Instead, they trust in their rightness of their views. Their trust is in the rightness of their views, which makes them feel superior. When we think about those, think about I mean, we, we have this rightness in doctrine can can be put in two categories and can be put uh, scoffing at unbelievers and also scoffing at believers. And growing up in this city, all of us will be around the table this week, probably with unbelievers who have a sense of the rightness of their own doctrine. How are you interacting with them? Is there the emotion of all that you were harmed with and done wrong with that will come out at the Thanksgiving table to where it sounds ungracious, unloving, and selfishly motivated? Is there a scoff? You believe that? But we say the same thing to believers that, look, we're not, and we as as. A church, we do not hold that we see everything rightly because we're not Jesus. We're going to see we've got our own blind spots as a church. So even if somebody in another church that, you know, has something against us, we want to hear that in love and in grace and in mercy. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that's said because we want to go before the Lord and say, God, you show us. But how do we respond to people who who think differently? In categories of doctrine than we do. Is there a scoffing? You believe that? I can't believe you believe that. Or is there a grace motivated? We, we want to center around the gospel. So we want to make sure that the gospel is what's central. Now, Jesus, when he's struck, he doesn't turn the other cheek, does he? Why? Because now it's about the gospel. On matters of the gospel, we need to be able to speak the truth in love. And if we have somebody, a brother or sister in Christ, that has, they are askew on the gospel, that's where we want to be able, in love. Okay, but that doesn't sound like the gospel. But if even with unbelievers, that doesn't sound like the gospel that we find in Scripture, that we want to live out, that we want to walk out. That Jesus came to show us. That's where we have to be keen and discerning, but we must not become the scoffers. And, and slipping into this idolatry, it, it doesn't just limit ourselves and our righteousness toward others. It actually slips in and we become, in our own minds, righteous before God based on something we've done rather than His grace. And so it shows up in our prayers. God, please, please help me. With this financial thing, I know I've been a wreck in my finances, but God, I've been to church every day, every Sunday for, well, maybe not every Sunday, but God, I've, I'm doing something. For, I, shared, I shared the gospel with a co-worker and we begin, it's very subtle and it sneaks into our prayers. That's an exaggeration, but it sneaks into our prayers to where we begin mounting a case, not of scripture and why God should intervene, but of our own righteousness. Well, I've done these things, God, and, and 
please respond. Whether it's issues of finance, whether it's issues of healing, whether it's issues of, of people, uh, family members getting saved. It, it just sneaks in. It's so subtle it sneaks in. But here Timothy Keller says, it's deadly. It's deadly because it, 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 it robs the gospel of its life. And this is what Annas was doing. He was looking at what he was supposed to be finding life in and he was making it dead. And he's not just making it dead for himself, but for the others that he was supposed to be leading into life. The scriptures are about life. Religious idolatry makes us ignore the life that Jesus is, that he reveals in John 14, 6. And here, what's Jesus revealing? I'm dying for religious idolatry. I'm dying for those who, would, who, who are trying to be right before God based on their own performance, based on, upon their own moral conformity. And then Anna sends him to Caiaphas', Caiaphas house bound. He then is to Pilate. So Jesus calls his second witness, the man Pilate. Now, Pilate was a scoundrel of a man. Brutal, uncaring, hated the Jews. At one, uh, one time, he had his soldiers go in and raid the temple treasury so he could build an aqueduct. And when they objected to his soldiers doing that, because it was God's money to take care of the temple, he sent in his soldiers dressed in plain clothes with hidden daggers and whenever anybody came up to try to stop them from taking the money, he killed them. And here we find that in the other gospel accounts that he mixed the blood of the Galileans with the sacrifices, meaning probably while they were worshiping, he sent soldiers in to kill them. This was a, a hard man. He probably got his job because he married the granddaughter of the Roman emperor, Claudia. Claudia is his wife, the granddaughter of the Roman emperor. So that's probably why he got his position. But here's a man who enjoys his power and uses his power and tries to use his power against Jesus. But Jesus is the one in control. He's, he's, he's gained and secured his own power and conquest. Yet his conversation with Jesus reveals the motivation of his own heart. He asks Jesus, well, are, are, you, are you the king of the Jews? And here, Jesus is always looking to win the heart. Are you saying that? Or are you just believing what they said about me? Are you looking for a king? Is what he's asking Pilate. And as he goes through and walks through this discourse, Pilate's looking for a king. But he's looking for a king if he's trying to figure out, is this king going to be... Because uh, he's, heard, he's heard the rumors that a king from the Jews, from Israel, will rise up and his kingdom will be earthly. Now, for the Roman Empire, that's a threat. And so he wants to try to figure out, are you a threat to the Roman Empire? But he's also looking for a king. Because Jesus lets him know he's got a kingdom. But it's not a kingdom that wars over land. It's not a kingdom that has warriors, earthly mindset of warriors. And Jesus said, look, if that was the case, my homies would have already done this out. And we'd be fine. I wouldn't be here right now. But he's letting him know, I don't have that type of kingdom. It's not of this world. See, the kingdom that Jesus is about is not over land, it's for hearts. But Pilate's looking for a king, and here Jesus is drawing him into that. How do we know that? Because he says, what is truth? 
Pilate is looking for something deeper. He's looking for a king of truth. And he didn't wait around for an answer, probably because he was afraid of the answer too. But he was afraid of the truth. See, what false, what had, what had he done to get in the position of his power that was false toward everybody else? That he didn't want to confront in that moment either. Here, I believe that when, when Jesus has Pilate on the stand, he's exposing cultural idolatry. Now, Pilate's cultural idolatry, idolatry was power. You have to have power. That comes through finances. That comes through political power. That, that's power. And you see that in the Roman Empire because uh, the successful ones with all the money and the power had the servants, had the big houses, had their special tutors for their children. They, it was, but to the outside, everybody saw them as powerful. They arrived. They had the power. But I think our own guilt is exposed in this as well in that we interact with our present day cultural idolatry, which is individual freedom. There's an, there's an autonomy that from our culture is the end all be all. And that word autonomy, it's two words, autos and namas in the Greek. Autos is self, namas law, self law. I rule myself. That's my autonomy. And we bump up against this in the workplace and families. As, as kids grow into teenagers, all of a sudden, we, did, we all did this. We became teenagers. We try to figure out, all right, I want me. So what do I have to do to you in order to benefit me? I don't care about you. I'm going to mouth off to you. I'm going to disobey. Workplaces. Sleight of hand moves. To one up. To have this illusion of power that comes from our own personal freedom and making our own choices and being our own boss. But you know, I think Pilate represents for us our quest for truth that the world says is found in self-discovery. It's the cultural answer to control. We want to control and rule our own hearts. And the culture says if we control truth, we control our lives. So therefore, truth is in us. It's not something outside of us, it's inside of us. You hear that all over the place. Be true to yourself. It comes out in issues of esteem and, and self-thoughts toward one another. It, not spanking. This, these are cultural. Truth is found in the person, so there you can't do anything to harm that truth. But we slip into it when... When we lust for control in our own lives, when we when we lust for the self law that will be in all of us, whether it's control over others, that's revealed by dominance or type A personalities. Well, I'm just a type A personality. You know, you like to control other people and you're just real direct in telling them what to do. And so you feel like you have control. That's what type A is. Or through manipulation and pity. Through whining. We all whine. We whine, we manipulate to get our ways. Might not sound like a whine, but we whine. What is that? What, what's the root there? The heart motivation is I want control. I want what I want. I want self-law. I want to be true right now. See, Pilate, I think, was thinking he had truth, but realizing it was fleeting. As much as he thought, this is true for me, let me do it, it fleed from him. Fled. Fleed. <laughs> Choose your own verb tense 
Control over others. What about control over what others think about us? We want to control what they think so we appear something before them or we do something in front of them or we speak in a particular way to control what others would think of us. It's subtle. Creeps in. How about control of our own destiny on this earth? We fight for freedom and autonomy. And this, this would be probably most glaring if, if there is an inability to walk with others in the body of Christ. Doing the, I mean, and we, we so many times mix Annas and Pilate as believers. We kind of get these things all kind of confused because there's one word that's the root word for both of those and it's idolatry. But we try to mix these things. There might be in a covenant group, but we're not walking with people. Might be in this church, but it's still at a safe distance for yourself. And there's not a, you know, here in the retrospect class with the high school, middle schoolers, we, we talked about in Philippians uh, 1 that Paul says we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that's standing firm and being side by side. The community of believers is vital to walking out a manner of life worthy of the gospel. But so often we're, we're, we're bumped when we don't have uh, that ability or that safety to be vulnerable because we're trusting God. We we I think a lot of times shine a light on the fact that we want control of our own destiny. So we're going to make our own choices. We're not really going to go before the Lord or before anybody, any uh, anybody that we're walking with or the, the church to find out, is this wise for me to do? What do you think? And, it, and I want to rule me again. Another thought by Tim Keller. Today the, today, the need for transcendence and meaning has detached itself from anything more important than the individual self and its freedom to be what it chooses. Among younger people, the older flag-waving America First mindset is out. Now life is about creating a self through the maximization of individual freedom from the constraints of community. Key word, creating a self. Whenever we're looking to create something other than what God has created. No, the creator. It's, it's Romans 1.25 here. That God gave them over to a debased mind because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature, the created things, rather than the creator. If we are looking to create for ourselves anything other than what God is to us, we're idolaters. And we've bought into the cultural mindset. We've bought in to if I am true to myself, if truth is in me, I'm going to call my own shots and do what I, own, what I want to do. Here, I think Jesus is saying, I'm dying for cultural idolatry because cultural idolatry it makes us ignore the truth that Christ is here religious idolatry makes us ignore the life that Christ is now cultural idolatry causes us to neglect and ignore the truth that Christ is and we have a verdict we have a verdict that comes when here in verse 36 where now Jesus is He's saying who he is. Verse 36 and 37. My kingdom is not of this world. He's talking about a kingdom again. It's not for land. It's for hearts. And here the king has come to the earth. See, this isn't a a spiritual. This isn't a a natural kingdom that um, 
dominates man and puts them under control. It's a spiritual kingdom that gives sight to the blind. It gives legs to the lame and it gives life to the dead. That's the kingdom that Christ is. Here's this is part of his verdict. The kingdom is here. The king of truth is here. And the king of truth is bound. The king of truth has come down. He's bound and the innocent will suffer. For idolaters. Here and Jesus says, for this reason, I have been born. Verse 38, you said that I'm a king for this purpose. I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth that word witness there. Here in the original language is from the word that we get martyr. Martyria. Witness testimony is martyria, which is where we get the word martyr. You know what Jesus is saying? I came to die for the truth. I came to die and take the place of those that have been idolaters and living lies. And now I take that upon myself so they can know the truth and the truth will set them free. For who the son sets free is free indeed. And we have a great exchange taking place. Whereas the king of truth has come to die, captives are set free. We're introduced to a man named Barabbas, a robber. In the other gospel accounts, we have more light to who this man was and the scoundrel that he was. But we have Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He's been a murderer, but he's a prominent prison that the Roman authorities are holding. He's. He's Jewish and he is a prominent prisoner. And and most probably he was only about 1,500 feet away from this interaction with Pilate and the crowd. So in essence, and and we have in Matthew 27, the, the exchange going on with Pilate saying, I don't find any guilt in this man. And the crowd responding, crucify him. Well, they first he first hears his name. Barabbas, because that's what he's most probably hearing the crowd, but not Pilate. And so he's in the jail cell. He's he's far enough. It's a big crowd and they're yelling. They've got an agenda and they want to push their agenda. So they're making sure their agenda is heard. And so he can hear this. So Pilate comes out and says, you want me to release the king of the Jews for you or somebody else? Barabbas. He doesn't hear anything next. You know what he hears next? Crucify him. Then he hears it louder. Crucify him. Then he hears. Let his blood be on us and our children. Barabbas. See, I wonder if the Passion movie got this a little off. Because I don't think Barabbas came out like this. Yeah. What's he hearing? Crucify me. The crowd wants me dead. Kent Hughes draws it out this way. As hardened as he was, Barabbas must have grown faint. He may have stared at the palms of his hands in growing horror of the awaiting agony. He had seen crucifixions. 
He knew of their interminable agony. He heard the sound of the key in the lock, felt even greater terror. And suddenly he was released from his chains and told he was free. He was probably in a daze when he emerged into the sunlight. Slowly the truth unfolded. Jesus Christ was dying in his place. Amazing. Another uh, commentator on this passage said, Barabbas is the only person in the world and the universe that could ever say Jesus died in my place physically. But we can say he died in my place spiritually. See what we are? We have the Barabbas in us as well. We've robbed God of his glory with our idolatry. We've looked for the things that God has created, for the means of satisfaction, fulfillment, and life and truth, where God said, those aren't found in the things out there. They're found in me. Jesus comes, takes our punishment as idolaters, and Barabbas' name, two phrases, Bar, son of, Abba, father. See, when Jesus dies, sons go free. When Jesus dies, sons and daughters that he has purchased flee from their captivity, flee from their prison cells for what? For life and for truth. So our lives get to be lived now as a reflection of his greatness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Let us Throw off all the idolatry. And recognize and stand in amazement yet again. When Jesus dies, sons go free. Jesus, I was that prisoner. I was that captive. I should have died. But you died in my place. Why? So I could be saved. Saved from the Father's wrath toward my sin and now enter into a relationship that is more powerful and fulfilling and joyful than we can ever imagine and it only increases and it will increase into eternity. That's the truth that he died for. Let's stand up together. Jesus, again, we stand in utter amazement at your sacrifice, at your greatness and your love. And when two witnesses were brought against us, you were right. But when the king of truth dies in our place, we get set free. 
Lord, we ask that this would be the weightier matter in our lives. That we wouldn't lose sight so easily of the weightier matters. That as we are living for you with an ongoing pursuit, our eyes are taken away from the, the, the acclaim and the accolades of the world and we're, we're focused in to where the fruit is justice and mercy and faithfulness. Oh Lord, may the light that we have in you look like that. May it look like Christ. Please, Lord. And may we continually, continually be amazed.